Dog Works Radio is sponsored by Alaska Dog Works. Check out their website at alaskadogworks.com. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. I'm Alex Stein, and this is Iditarod Through the Decades from Mushing Radio. Today, Episode 3, The 1980s. The jittery uncertainty of the 1970s, an era marked by gas shortages, the resignation of President Nixon, the humiliation of losing the Vietnam War, and a seemingly never-ending Iranian hostage crisis, gave way to a new sense of optimism in the early 80s. In Alaska, the oil pipeline and the promise of oil revenues brought workers into Alaska and set the stage for a full-on boom. America as a whole was ready to feel better about itself after everything that had happened in the 1970s, especially with President Ronald Reagan announcing that it was morning in America and the future looked bright. A new focus on making money for the sake of making money led to the rise of the yuppies, young urban professionals whose conspicuous consumption was guided by the motto expressed in the movie Wall Street, greed is good. After years of building up credibility and name recognition, the Iditarod saw tremendous growth during the early 1980s. As new sponsors were recruited, the purse increased dramatically and the number of mushers competing grew. When Libby Riddles won the race in 1985, beating 60 other teams, she took home $50,000 in prize money, the same amount split by the entire field in the first race 12 years earlier. The oil boom played a big role in the growth of Alaska, which almost doubled its population to more than 550,000 by the end of the 1980s. And Governor Jay Hammond's idea of setting up a permanent fund for oil revenue and paying each Alaskan a dividend every year helped fuel the boom and would help smooth the way when the boom finally went bust, and then went boom again, and then bust. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, Rick Swenson was a dominant force thanks to a powerful dog team operating in its prime. This dominance led to Swenson being nicknamed the King of Iditarod. Swenson also brought a sense of swagger to the race, eagerly giving interviews and boasting about his skills and the prowess of his dogs. Swenson also brought an element of surprise and mystique to the race. In early Iditarods, Many mushers would travel primarily during daylight, but by the 1980s, more and more mushers were traveling at night, making use of headlamps to see into the distance when it was dark. But Rick Swenson would often run dark through the night, not using a headlamp at all. This meant that opposing mushers were never entirely sure where he was. They couldn't see the telltale light behind them or in front of them, And often, he'd come up behind competitors and pass them when they least expected it. Swenson grew up in Minnesota, but was enamored early on with dog sled racing. 
As a kid, he read everything he could get his hands on about the All-Alaska Sweepstakes, the 1925 Serum Run, Leonard Seppala, and Scotty Allen. After reading about Joe Reddington's dream of staging the Iditarod, Swenson wrote to Reddington and said he was moving to Alaska soon. Swenson arrived in 1973 and made a pilgrimage out to Kinnick to see Reddington, who offered him valuable insight and advice, as well as selling Swenson a few of his first dogs. This was something that Reddington regularly did with mushers. Anyone who came to see him, he would talk to. He was interested primarily in spreading the word about dog sled racing and making it more of a major sport. And it didn't matter to him if it was someone who would later go on to win the Iditarod or someone who would just be a recreational musher or even just a fan. One of the Reddington dogs Swenson bought was Nugget, who taught all Swenson's early dogs how to run. Swenson's dog team would eventually include Andy, a superstar leader who powered Swenson's early Iditarod runs, leading on three of his first four Iditarod wins. Swenson admitted that he knew very little about mushing when he first came to Alaska, but Joe Reddington was always extremely generous with his time. Reddington just wanted people to love mushing as much as he did. Swenson finished 10th in his rookie race in 1976 in just under 19 days and 8 hours. For his first 20 years of competing, Swenson would finish in the top 10 every year, winning the race five times and coming in second another three times. When Swenson came in 10th in 1995, his time was almost 10 days faster than his 10th place finish as a rookie. 1981 was also the first year that Jeff Schultz took photos of the race. Schultz had met Reddington, who was eager to rope him into the Iditarod family. When it became clear that Schultz was not going to get behind a sled and compete driving a dog team, Reddington invited him to come along and take pictures for us. A pilot agreed to fly Schultz up the trail to McGrath in exchange for gas money, and Schultz donated the photos he took for the Iditarod Trail Annual. In 1982, Schultz became an official race photographer. This time, his transportation costs were paid by the ITC, and he got to sleep on the floors of remote village buildings along with other race volunteers in exchange for the ITC having use of his photos to promote the race. Nearly 40 years later, Jeff Schultz is still the official Iditarod photographer, and his iconic images of Iditarod have been seen all over the world. The 1980s were also a decade when women came to dominate the Iditarod. Susan Butcher arrived in Alaska in the 1970s after growing up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, home of both Harvard University and MIT, and living for a while in Colorado. Butcher was eager to embrace a more rural lifestyle and build a life that was centered around dog mushing. She was working on a musk ox farm near Unalakleet, when she was told she had to meet Joe Reddington, the Iditarod guy, who was then working at a Unalakleet fish canning factory. After they chatted about dogs and mushing, Reddington invited her to come to Connick to train. Butcher arrived in Connick driving an old Volkswagen bug. Five dogs jumped out and Reddington greeted Butcher, and Butcher told him that she had ten more dogs in the car. As a shocked Reddington watched, Dog after dog kept emerging from the Volkswagen like clowns out of a car in the circus. 
Butcher set up camp in a tent on Reddington's property and would help him train his dogs in exchange for food for her dogs. Back then, there was a rotating crew that would camp on Reddington's land for shorter or longer stretches while training dogs. Susan Butcher competed as a rookie in the 1978 Iditarod, finishing in 19th place. Butcher trained with Shelley Gill and Verona Thompson, and the local press nicknamed the three Brawn, Brains, and Beauty. Butcher would go on to compete in 17 Iditarods, scratching only one time and finishing 15 times in the top 10 with four wins and four second-place finishes. In 1980, Butcher was the first woman to finish in the top five, and Iditarod fans all over the world predicted it was just a matter of time before she would become the first female champion. Following the 1979 Iditarod, Butcher and Reddington prepared to bring a group of dogs with them to climb Mount McKinley, also known as Denali, or to many Alaskans, simply the mountain. This is the largest peak in North America, and despite the fact that neither Butcher nor Reddington had any climbing experience, they managed to summit McKinley on Memorial Day 1979, even making it through a blizzard with winds of more than 100 miles per hour as they approached the summit. Coming down was a bit more difficult as they had to watch their speed, and the dogs were eager to go as fast as possible so they could get home. Susan Butcher very nearly won the Iditarod in 1982, a race slowed by several gigantic storms. Butcher and a handful of other mushers took a wrong turn near Squetna and would have to double back. This mistake would come to haunt Butcher later in the race. The storms continued to wreak havoc on the race trail, and at one point, Herbie Nyakpuk went off in a storm out of Shaktulik while others stayed behind. Nyakpuk would be forced to double back himself and found that he was back at Shaktulik 24 hours after he left. Another storm held up many mushers at White Mountain, where they were eager to get back in the trail and cross those last 77 miles into Nome. Susan Butcher came in second that year, finishing less than four minutes behind Rick Swenson. Perhaps she might have won if she hadn't taken that wrong turn early in the race and lost valuable time. Or maybe it just wasn't her year, and the time would have evened out when she was stopped by the storms. This great rivalry between Swenson and Butcher would continue for most of the decade. Butcher finished second again in 1984, losing this time to Dean Osmer. But 1985 seemed to be her year. By this time, the Iditarod had become a much more popular and much more well-known event. Iditarod also introduced an official print in 1984, and the sales of this print were so massive that they allowed the race to offer a much larger purse in 1985 when it was announced that the winner would take home $50,000. Ultimately, it was a moose who would come between Susan Butcher and her first victory. Early in the 1985 race, Butcher and her team encountered a moose on the trail. Moose and sled dogs do not traditionally get along very well, so Butcher stopped her team and tried to scare the moose away. No amount of yelling and screaming would get the moose to leave, and it soon charged her dogs. The moose attacked Butcher's team, killing several dogs and injuring a few others. Finally, musher Dwayne Halverson came onto the scene. Halverson was carrying a gun in his sled, and he shot the moose. Butcher's chances were ruined for the year, 
and she scratched from the race. Halverson would go on to finish in second. Libby Riddles, a relatively unknown musher from Teller, Alaska, had run the Iditarod twice before, finishing 18th in 1980 and 20th in 1981. Riddles and her partner, Joe Garney, ran a kennel near Nome and were taking turns running Iditarod. Garney had finished third in 1984, and they had a very strong team. But the 1985 race was again bogged down by fierce storms, including one that blew in from the Bering Sea near the end of the race. Most mushers hunkered down in Chak Tulik to wait for the storm to clear. The weather was so fierce that mushers feared they would exhaust their dogs having to break trail in the storm. After contemplating her choices for a while, Riddles decided she would brave the storm, going out into it, knowing it could lead her to victory and the $50,000 in prize money. Most of the others figured Riddles would not get far, and they could easily catch up when the storm cleared. The storm was so extreme that it was nearly impossible to see anything, including the trail. Riddles only made it about six miles past Shaktulik when she was forced to stop and bed down in the wind and snow in her sled bag. She spent a horrible, cold, uncomfortable night and later told the Iditarod Annual that she was definitely scared. You'd have to be stupid if you weren't scared in those conditions, she said. But fear keeps everything in perspective, and she knew that it would be worthwhile if she could persevere and go on to win the race. It's easy to forget in this modern day of GPS devices on sleds, but back in 1985, exact up-to-the-minute information was hard to come by during the race. Even arrival and departure times from checkpoints would be delayed for hours, especially during storms, because it was often difficult to communicate information by radio or satellite phone. So, while many people may have known Libby Riddle's left Shack Tulik, they had no additional information about where she was or how far she had gone. That information was also hard to come by locally, especially during storms, since most villagers would rather stay inside instead of wandering around with little visibility, trying to figure out exactly where any given dog team was. For a very long time, it wasn't at all clear exactly where Riddles had gone, how fast she was going, or even if her team was on the move at all. By the time the snow stopped, Riddles was far enough in front that no one could catch her. But she had a nagging feeling up until she made it up onto Front Street that someone was catching up and she felt sure that she would be passed and beaten before she got to the finish line. In part because of the storm delays, 1985 was an unusually slow Iditarod and Riddles' winning time was more than 18 days, five days slower than the winner of the 1984 race. It was also in 1985 that the Iditarod was first featured on ABC's Wide World of Sports, which would periodically include Iditarod coverage for many years. Having a woman win Iditarod was a game-changer for the race. Any musher or serious fan could tell you that just finishing a race of this magnitude is a great accomplishment. But to have a woman compete on equal footing with men and best them under the horrendous weather conditions was extraordinary and really captured the public's imagination. And for a while, Libby Riddles became the face of Iditarod and of Alaska. 
President Reagan called to congratulate her, and she was featured in Sports Illustrated and Vogue magazines. More importantly, Riddles was a great role model for girls and young women, an inspiration for those who dream big and believe they can do anything boys and men can do. Some felt at the time that the fame Riddles got should have gone to Susan Butcher, who was more of an established force in the sport. But Riddles' fame proved to be short-lived. She would never have another top 10 Iditarod finish, and hip problems drew her to withdraw from long-distance mushing a few years later. Butcher's own victory would come the next year, and she went on to become the first musher to win three Iditarods in a row in 1986, 1987, and 1988. This gave rise to a best-selling t-shirt and bumper sticker that said, Alaska, where men are men and women win the Iditarod. Butcher's fame would soon eclipse Libby Riddles, and many people still mistakenly believe that it was Butcher and not Libby Riddles who was the first woman to win the Iditarod. After finishing second in 1989 behind Joe Runyon, Susan Butcher would come back to win the race in 1990, matching Rick Swenson's then-record four championships. And in the first three races Butcher won, Swenson was always very much in the mix. He finished third in 1986 and second in both 1987 and 1988. Swenson was further behind in the 1990 race, but he still managed to finish in the top 10. The 1980s also saw another Iditarod first. In 1983, Rick Mackey, the son of Dick Mackey and brother of future champion Lance Mackey, won the Iditarod, marking the first time a father and son had both won the race. It's often the case that it's difficult to make clean breaks between decades, and so it was for Iditarod. At the start of the 1990s, Susan Butcher and Rick Swenson were still dominating the Iditarod. But several teams who would completely dominate the race throughout the 1990s were already active and preparing to make big progress in the late 1980s. The financial health of the race continued to seesaw back and forth, after two years of a $50,000 grand prize, the 1988 first prize dropped back down to $30,000. And while the race no longer seemed in danger of disappearing from year to year, it also hadn't quite reached a place where its financial health was ever assured. The 1980s ended in a way few could have foreseen back in the 1960s when the Iditarod was first dreamed up. The world seemed to change overnight at the end of the 1980s, but the changes had been bubbling up for years. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. After a decade of massive defense spending on the part of both the United States and the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union was nearing bankruptcy and could not afford to support all of its Eastern European satellite states. Travel restrictions were relaxed between East and West Germany for the first time in decades, and travelers from East Germany and Poland flooded into West Berlin to buy the consumer electronics they had been unable to get for years. Before long, East Germans breached the Berlin Wall, and it became clear to leaders on both sides that the wall that had been there for two generations was about to fall. As a massive party erupted on both sides of the wall, the East Germans decided not to open fire, but instead to let the people party. In a nod to capitalism, 
young entrepreneurs on the East German side started charging several marks for tourists to rent chisels so that they could break off and take home their own chunks of the wall. More importantly, this was a sign of larger changes to come, and before long, the Soviet Union itself would collapse, and its successor state would struggle to embrace its own version of capitalism. Going into the 90s, it suddenly seemed once again like anything was possible. Here is a list of the Iditarod winners for the 1980s. 1980, Joe May with lead dogs Wilbur and Cora Gray in 14 days, 7 hours, 11 minutes, and 51 seconds. 1981, Rick Swenson with lead dogs Andy and Slick in 12 days, 8 hours, 45 minutes, and 2 seconds. 1982, Rick Swenson with lead dog Andy in 16 days, 4 hours, 40 minutes, and 10 seconds. 1983, Rick Mackey with lead dogs Preacher and Jody in 12 days, 14 hours, 10 minutes, and 44 seconds. 1984, Dean Osmer with lead dogs Red and Bullet in 12 days, 15 hours, 7 minutes, and 33 seconds. 1985, Libby Riddles with lead dogs Axel and Dugan in 18 days, 0 hours, 20 minutes, and 17 seconds. 1986, Susan Butcher with lead dogs Granite and Maddie in 11 days, 15 hours, 6 minutes, and 0 seconds. 1987, Susan Butcher with lead dogs Granite and Maddie in 11 days, 2 hours, 5 minutes, and 13 seconds. 1988, Susan Butcher with lead dogs Granite and Tolstoy in 11 days, 11 hours, 41 minutes, and 40 seconds. And 1989, Joe Runyon with lead dogs Rambo and Furlan the Husky in 11 days, 5 hours, 24 minutes, and 34 seconds. Next week, the 1990s. As Susan Butcher retires, a new generation takes over, and the sport is completely dominated throughout the decade by three legendary dogmen, Martin Boozer, Jeff King, and Doug Swingley. For Iditarod Through the Decades, I'm Alex Stein. You can support this podcast on patreon.com slash Did you know that Alaska Dog Works trains service dogs for those in need throughout North America? Each and every service dog that is trained through the Lead Dog Service Dog Program and Michelle Forda winner team has an individual training plan. We train for autistic, mobility, psychiatric, and PTSD for our soldiers for service work. If you know of someone that may need a service dog, please take a moment and check out Alaska Dog Works on social media and at alaskadogworks.com. If you like our podcast, there are a few things you can do. You can take a couple of minutes and go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You can also check out all of our DogWorks Radio sponsors and promotions in our show notes. Another thing you can do is go over to Facebook. 
like our Facebook page, and one last thing, please tell all of your friends by spreading the word about DogWorks Radio. Thank you so much for listening to us. We really appreciate you. DogWorks Radio is produced by Robert Forto. Logo art by Angry Squirrel Studios. DogWorks Radio is produced in conjunction with KVRF 89.7 in Palmer, Alaska. For dog training advice, you can contact Alaska DogWorks at 907-841-1686 or visit their website at alaskadogworks.com. If you have a show idea or would like to be a guest, please contact us by sending an email to live at dogworksradio.com. <laughs>